Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart bring you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage begins this morning with Jesus on his way to a little town called Bethany, four days after his friend Lazarus had died. Now that four-day thing matters maybe more than we know. The accepted wisdom among the religious leaders at the time was that a soul would stay with a body for three days and depart forever on the fourth. Four days dead means we have a definitive post-mortem. It means body and soul are gone and never coming back. Four days means too late. So Jesus shows up into that, to, into a definitive post-mortem, but with a definitive purpose. Just before this, a message was conveyed to him that from Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha, letting him know that Lazarus was really, really sick. Apparently so sick that they sent for him. By all indications, deathly sick. And maybe you've gotten that kind of message before. About a year and a half ago, I got a message like that, that my dad, who had struggled mightily with cancer for years, was going into hospice care. And when you get that kind of message, you, you really think one thing, how can I get to that person as soon as possible? But when Jesus learned of Lazarus's deathly illness, learned of his predicament, he didn't dash off. He, in fact, intentionally delayed for not one day, but two. And the question is, why? Well, it turns out Jesus isn't pulled into the crisis of this predicament, but he is carrying out a purpose. So when two days passed, right before setting out for Bethany, he actually tells his disciples that Lazarus has, in fact, died in that time. And yet, that didn't deter him from his purpose, but he defines it for them. He tells them, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. Now, that's a bit of the background going into this passage, but there's a few other things I want to notice as we, as we get into this. The first thing I want to see is the depth of Jesus' relationships. Notice that Jesus isn't told that Lazarus is gravely ill, but the one whom you love is gravely ill. A little later on, John tells us, or a little earlier on, rather, John tells us not only that he loved Lazarus, but that he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There's a depth of relationship here. Another thing that stands out is that Jesus says that there is a remedy, not just for Lazarus' illness, but actually for his death. Now, much has been said about the uniqueness of the moment we're living through right now with this pandemic, about how this thing will ripple through our politics and our culture and our economy, and how it is really changing our country, um, not just for a short time, but for a very long time. And to me, one of the remarkable things that has happened as a result of, how, of all of this is how illness and death are at the very center of the cultural conversation right now. And that is a significant thing. That's no small thing in a culture like ours, which has no shortage of magical thinking when it comes to illness and death and dying. 
that's true of us maybe more than any culture in the history of the world. I mean, we're not even really all that comfortable with seeing people age and grow frail, so we put them in homes. We don't, we don't have graveyards anymore. We have gardens of remembrance. Nobody dies anymore. They just pass away. One writer said that our culture is more averse to death than the Victorians were averse to sex. So COVID comes crashing in, and we're confronted with some inconvenient and uncomfortable truths, right? And as far as I know, the question of COVID mortality remains unsettled. Is it less than 1%? Is it more than 3%? No one actually seems to know for sure, but what is settled and has always stood as empirical and existential truth is that the mortality rate for human beings is 100%. So when Jesus says that Lazarus will recover not merely from his illness, but from his death, so that his condition will terminate in the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, we have got to sit up and take notice because he is saying, that there is a condition in which death is not the end. That there's some way to pass through it into life. In fact, Jesus tells them that he is glad about this. He says, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there so, so that you can see this that to the end that you may believe. That you may put your faith in me. So with all that, he heads off to Bethany. And before he gets a chance to get to anyone in the family, Martha gets to him. Now, we know quite a bit about Martha or about Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, from other places in the Bible. Uh, if you look at Luke 10, uh, you will see what is true in so many families, and that is just because people have the same two parents and grew up in the same home doesn't mean they will be anything alike. And that is very much how it is with these two sisters, Mary and Martha. Martha is active. Mary is passive. Martha's a doer. Mary is a dreamer. Martha is feisty. Mary's a feeler. So it makes sense that Martha wouldn't wait on Jesus to come to the house, but she cuts him off at the pass. Like the instant she hears she's coming, she is out the door and fairly quickly in his face. And the first words out of her mouth are, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And it's, it's hard to nail down just from those words exactly where she's coming from. Is this resentment? Is it respect? Is it something else? And, and I want to say it's all of the above. It's ambiguous because Martha is feeling it all. There's grievance and there's disappointment. There's gratitude and there's hope. It is all there. She makes it very clear that she's disappointed, that she is not happy about how this has played out, and she makes it just as clear that she is so grateful that Jesus has come, and she's not without hope. Martha talks to Jesus the way, in the same way the psalmists talk to God, putting together stuff we don't think normally should go together, like complaints and hope. Our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 13, and that's a supreme example of that. David's going through some terrible stuff, and what does he do? He prays to the Lord, and it's full of complaints. How long, O oh Lord? In other words, why are you taking so long? 
Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Things are not as they ought to be. One of your people should not have to go through this. You are, it is like you have forgotten me. It's like you're hiding from me. I've got no place to go with my troubles. Full of complaints. But there's also hope. The situation may be unchanged, but that prayer in Psalm 13 from David ends with great hope. The situation is unchanged, but so is God's faithfulness. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so he remembers that. He relies on God's character, his covenant love, his salvation, his grace. That gives us a sense of Martha's posture before Jesus. Martha complains, if you had been here and you weren't, Lazarus would not have died, and he did. But that continues in hope. She says, but even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give. Now, now this is faith. A faith that looks to the greatness and grace of Jesus. It, It is to say, I can't track with all that's going on in life right now, but I trust your power. I trust your grace and your faithfulness and your heart for me. Faith in Jesus can handle all of it. It can handle the boldness and the brokenness. It can handle the desires and the disappointment. Because of who he is, because he is a great king, he's not so insecure that he can't deal with complaints. He's not so powerless that he can't handle the conditions. So Martha doesn't come to Jesus with drips and drabs. She's not trying to be polite. She brings the dump truck. And pours it all on Jesus, confident he can handle the entirety of it. And so Jesus assures her that, in fact, Lazarus will rise again. And and Martha quickly agrees. She takes that as a solid biblical and theological truth. It's like if you've lost a loved one and someone reminds you in an attempt to comfort you that they're with the Lord, that's true. Amen. Martha believes in the truth of the resurrection. She believes that the day is going to come, that the Lord will make all things new, that when sin will be no more, when the dead will be brought to life. And that is good, true, theologically sound, biblical, eschatological, in-time hope. And Jesus doesn't contradict her hope, but he deepens it. He tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. All that you're clinging to, all that you're anticipating, the entirety of that hope has arrived. I'm here. Future hope has become present hope. All that resurrection hope isn't confined to some distant date on a calendar. It has been delivered to you in me, in the person of Jesus. And and in fact, here's how deep it goes. It goes so deep that Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die." Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, Jesus says this with Lazarus cold in the grave, and he says it to someone, Martha, who will one day be there herself, and yet he assures her that life is certain for those who believe, Jesus Jesus says, even though they die. But the person who believes in him 
Even though their death is inevitable, it won't be forever. For those who put their trust in Jesus, death won't crush them. They will actually come through it. Trusting in Jesus secures new life in the present and in perpetuity. You see, to say that I'm the resurrection and the life includes that assurance that he has the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, but it actually goes way, way beyond that. It's to say that the very person of Jesus, his very nature, is death-killing and life-giving. It's the same when Jesus says, I'm the truth, not merely is he saying I'm a truthful person or I'm wiser than all the rest, although that's true. He's saying I am the locus of all truth. So it is here. When he says I'm the resurrection and the life, he's pointing to something larger than him showing up to solve the problem of this particular physical death. He is saying that he is the locus of life. That any human being who puts their trust in him, even though one day they'll die, they will find life and they will never die. And Jesus puts that very pointedly, very personally to Martha. He asks her, do you believe this? And she says, yes. Yes, Lord, I I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. I, I, I love what Martha doesn't say in that answer. She doesn't say, I believe this. She says, I believe you. Her, her faith is not one that rests on abstract principles. It is rooted in a personal relationship with Jesus. After all, it's possible that she may not yet have an in-depth understanding of what Jesus has just said and the full implications of what it means to believe in him and enter eternal life, but it turns out she's got a deep biblical understanding of who Jesus is. She says, I believe that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God, that you're the one coming into the world. And in saying he's the Christ, she's saying, I know that you're God's anointed Savior, the fulfiller of the Davidic covenant, the eternal heir to David's throne, the long-promised eternal king, Israel's hope and consolation. I know that you're God's son. I know that you are in full possession of the divine nature, that you are intimately and eternally related to God the Father. And I know you're the one coming into the world. Like, I know where you came from, and I know where you've come to. You've come from heaven, from the right hand of the Father, and you've come here to me, to my people, into our mourning, to our weakness, our woundedness, to all of us who need salvation. You are the Christ son of God, from eternity into history, from heaven right into the middle of our humanity. And then the scene shifts to her sister, Mary. She'd have heard of Jesus coming too, but it seems she couldn't bring herself to leave the house. So Martha goes to her, not in the bossy way we might imagine, but in fact as a messenger to relay Jesus' invitation to her. She says, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. One writer I came across suggested that that verse, that the teacher is here calling for you, would be a good thing to carve on the top of every pew in every church and on the front of every pulpit. The teacher is here. He's calling for you. And even as Martha's words that Jesus is the one coming into the world still kind of hang into the air, Jesus comes to Mary right into her world, her world of grief, 
So Mary gets that invitation and she rises. She says she rose quickly. She heads out to meet Jesus. She's followed by this retinue of mourners thinking she's headed to Lazarus' tomb to cry some more there. But she comes to Jesus and when she sees him, she falls at his feet. She, she kind of falls apart. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. The exact thing Martha had said to him just a little earlier. The exact same statement from two sisters from the same family, each living through and wrestling with the exact same situation. So we might expect at this point the exact same response, the same answer that Jesus gave to Martha, except Jesus' response is utterly different. It's hardly a response at all. It's not verbal. It's really visceral. It just says he was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. The question is why? Why the different response? Well, it turns out that while their situation and their family connection and even their words are the same, their hearts aren't. Martha's strident. She's upset. She's in Jesus' face. She is tanking emotionally. And Jesus redirects her. He tells her that the story is playing out actually as it should because the great I am is here. With you, the resurrection and the life has arrived, arrived. with Martha. He, he pushes back at her. He meets sort of strident sadness with a word of truth, with proclamation. But there's not even a little bit of that with Mary. She is utterly despairing. And again, Jesus doesn't engage with her verbally. He enters in viscerally. He goes into her heartbrokenness. He kind of melts into her grief. He moves. He is moved to his core. He is troubled. There's, it's almost like Jesus is falling apart right there with her. Mary's cratering emotionally, and he doesn't push her, not even a little bit. He doesn't challenge anything. He really kind of enters her heart. Now, as much as we've learned about what kind of sisters these are in their approach to Jesus and their grief, we learn so much more about the kind of Savior Jesus is in meeting these two in their grief. Martha comes at Jesus with a very, I think, fixed idea of how things ought to have gone, and they haven't gone that way. Life is that, it seems, that she normally has under control. She knows precisely how things should have gone. And Jesus meets that and ministers to her with a word of truth. What does Martha need? What does the broken heart of Martha need? It, she needs to be relieved of the crushing burden of trying to keep life together, of captaining her own ship, of authoring her own story, of somehow sustaining her life and the life of others. Her heart needs to hear from Jesus that he is the resurrection and the life. That he's the author of the story. That even as you're suffering the heaviness of life and have been blinded, blindsided, I am sovereign over life and death and life will come from this. But Mary isn't upset, it seems, by her loss of control in life. She has been crushed by life. She doesn't seem to be one who's reviewing her situation and determining where all the preventable failures occurred and, you know, feeling burdened by all that could have been and should have been. She is just falling apart. 
So Jesus ministers to her, as one pastor put it, not with truth, but with tears. In fact, the closer he gets to her brother's tomb, he seems to become more emotional, more broken. What are we seeing in this? What do we learn of Jesus as he ministers to these two women and their broken hearts? What are we seeing in him? What we are seeing is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he is the God-man, that he's not one or the other, but he is both undiminished. And we learn maybe, maybe more than even Martha and Mary knew when they said it, that what we need more than anything is that he would be with us, that it's good that he's here, that he is the God that you and I need. He is the friend that you and I need. We need the truth of Jesus. We need to be confronted with the truth that we can't be Lord of our own lives, that his design is better than our dreams, that he is God and we are not. We need the truth of Jesus, and we also need the tears of Jesus. We need a God who knows our griefs intimately, who not only confronts our hubris, but takes on our heaviness. We need a Savior whose heart breaks with our own, who intimately knows and bears the pain brought on by sin and death and the brokenness of this world that crashes in on us and utterly crushes us. Jesus is the Savior we need to confront us with truth and to comfort us in the companionship of tears. Now, Lazarus' death breaks Jesus' heart. We've already seen how he dearly loved this man, and yet, if we can believe it, Jesus' grief goes even deeper than what's brought on by the death of a dearly loved friend. And I want to say that while we might be able to get some feel for Jesus' grief, I think it's virtually impossible to fathom it here. Every time one of us, every one of us rather, was born into a world in which death is actually a reality. We live with the second law of thermodynamics as just the way it is. Avocados go bad before we can eat them. Our cars die. Our skin gets wrinkly and you know, the day comes when we all will breathe our last. The boss was right. Everything dies, baby. That's a fact. But unlike us, Jesus actually knew a time when sin was not. He knew a world where death was not present. As, as we've seen in this series, Jesus is the word that was in the beginning he is the word who brought into being God's good creation and all of its beauty and harmony and thriving and joyousness. He created, intended, enjoyed, and experienced the way it should be. So can we even begin to imagine his horror and his grief at the reality of sin and death and all its grievous effects, which are so vivid before him as he stands at this damnable tomb of his friend Lazarus and sees the grief of his sisters and their whole community, broken by that. There's a word in verse 38 that describes actually the heart of Jesus, a word commonly translated, as I read, as Jesus being deeply moved, deeply troubled. 
And I'm not much of a Greek scholar, and, and, and I don't want to pretend to be competent to render lexical verdicts, but I have to say that translating this word in this way is nearly a crime. Reading that Jesus was deeply moved gives us the idea that he's kind of just having a moment, that he's in need of a tissue. But in fact, while he's not without grief, what's being described here is Jesus is full of anger. Righteous anger. This should really read, then Jesus, boiling with anger, came to the tomb. And then the question is, well, what is Jesus so angry about? He's not angry at himself for showing up late. That was part of his plan. He's made that very clear. He's not angry with the family or with the crowd. He is filled with righteous rage at the fact of death itself. And its terrible effects. He's not like us who are hurt by death, hate that it happens, but all too easily treat it as, as this deeply unfortunate way things are, as something we've got to deal with in some way or another, because that's just the way the world is. Jesus faces death as that which never should have been. He faces it as it really is, as an intruder on God's good design, as an enemy as a destroyer. Now the question often comes up, if Jesus hates sin and death so much, and if he is God, why doesn't he just say the word and end it? Certainly he can do that with a wave of the hand, just put an end to sin and evil and wipe it out and restore things back to the way they ought to be. Why can't he just do that? Here's why. It is because sin and the evil that comes from it is not simply, an, it's not an impersonal force out there. Tragically, it is in here. It's in us. It's in me. It's in you. It's in us. We cannot pretend to stand apart from sin and all its effects. We are inexorably bound up in it so that just to wave the divine hand and destroy it would destroy us. So the Lord, out of love for us, won't just wave his omnipotent hand and that be that. Instead, he walks into it. He's after more than striking a mortal blow to sin. He goes further so that by his power and his grace, he saves so he comes into the world to bring an end to sin and judgment and death by bearing all of that on himself so that sin and all its horrific consequences would be destroyed and that the people he loves would be saved. So he tells them to remove the stone of the tomb, and Martha, again, is there, quick to assert herself, keeping with her character, telling her, Jesus, it is a mess in there. If you open that tomb, he's been there for 40 days, it is going to stink terribly. She loves to be in control, but it may be that she is wavering, that she's lost some of her earlier confidence in Jesus' resurrection promises, but Jesus is never offended by misplaced faith. He's not offended by lapses in faith. He's not offended by weak faith. So he doesn't rebuke her. He reassures her. He reminds her. He says, didn't I tell you that if you just believed, you'd see the glory of God? Like, don't worry about that wretched tomb, Martha. Rely on me and you will see the wonder of the resurrection. You will bear witness 
to what sits at the center of the glory of God in the dead coming to life. And so they remove the stone. And Jesus prays. He prays loud enough, intentionally, in order for everyone to hear so that what he's about to do with this would be for the glory of God, that the Son of God would be glorified through it. And so here it is again, that people would believe in him. He wants more for them than to be merely blown away by a great miracle. He wants them to believe in the man whom God has sent. This is about more than, it turns out, one man coming out of this tomb. Jesus' great desire is that everyone would come to believe in him, that they might come out of their own tomb of sin and death. That's the reason he delayed in coming. That's why he was even willing for those who loved, loved this man so dearly to suffer through terrible grief for a time so that those tears could be wiped away, so that they would believe in him and that they would have life. That's why this, we have this whole situation. Why? So that they would believe in Jesus. So Jesus yells out, and I'm not going to do it here, but he yells out, Lazarus, come out. It's like he said in chapter 10. The good shepherd calls his sheep by name. Come out, Lazarus. And let's be clear, this is a command. This is not just an invitation. This is not a cooperative act. All Lazarus was doing in the tomb was being dead. So at the invitation of Jesus at the initiative of Jesus, by the command of Jesus, through his grace and power, Lazarus goes from death to life. This is, in John's gospel, the seventh and climactic sign where Jesus shows that through the power of his word in response to the Father's answer to his prayer, he is the death of death. He is the life of life. Lazarus walks out, still wrapped in his burial clothes. Jesus tells the people to unwrap him and to help him and to let him go and to loose him of every vestige of the grave. Now that's what Jesus did. But to apprehend what's going on here in its fullness, we need to pay attention not only to what Jesus did, but what Jesus knew. The effects of what Jesus did seem pretty straightforward. He raised Lazarus from the dead and many came to faith. But a little past our passage, it's very clear in verse 53 that Jesus' actions had another effect. One that Jesus was aware of, one that he anticipated. And it is that from that moment on, the religious authorities began to plot his death. In other words, the second Jesus brought Lazarus out of the tomb, the plot against his own life was afoot. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that raising Lazarus to life would be the death of him. And you see, what was true for Lazarus is true for you and it's true for me. That the only way for any of us to be freed from sin and from the enemy that is death, the only way any of us have any hope of walking out of the grave of sin and death is for Jesus to go into the grave for us. For him to take our sin upon himself, our death on himself, so that we're not destroyed but delivered 
so that we're made alive, that we're forgiven, that we're set free. Jesus is swept up in the grief, bellowing with rage at the enemy, not just because of what he was about to do, but because of what he knew he would have to endure, knowing that he would soon take the full weight of the entirety of sin on himself, even to the excruciating death of, on a cross. And I just want to ask, can you see that? Can you see the horror of sin? Can you smell its stench? Can you shudder at its consequences? It's not the way it's supposed to be. Can we also see the grace of a Savior who wants more than merely the elimination of sin, but bore the terrible cost of sin on himself so that sin could be crushed forever and that we might be saved? Can you see the deep, deep love of Jesus? Can you see who he is, full of grace and truth? Do you see what he's come to do? And will you, for God's sake, believe in him, trust in him? Will you believe or will you strive for control? Will you suffer under the crushing weight or will you trust the Savior? The teacher is here and he's calling for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you indeed are a great Savior. And I don't want to muddy up the words by too long of a prayer. I would simply thank you for loving us so much, for loving us with a deep, deep love, for delivering us, for ministering to our hearts, for confronting us with truth, for comforting us with your tears. Lord, give us faith. All we can do right now is be dead. So would you call us to yourself? Raise us to newness of life. Refresh us in our newness of life that we would know you to be a great, great Savior who is with us whose presence makes all the difference. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.